Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Growing Up Dead in Texas, the new novel by Stephen Graham Jones, available now from MP Publishing. This is a story about a fire, a fire that could be seen for miles, a fire that split the community, a fire that turned families on each other, a fire that it's still hard to get a straight answer about. A quarter of a century ago, someone held a match to Greenwood, Texas's cotton crop. Stephen Graham Jones was 12 that year. What he remembers best, what has stuck with him all this time, is that nobody ever came forward to claim that destruction. Packed with small-town paranoia, mystery, and more secrets than your average graveyard, Growing Up Dead in Texas is Stephen Graham Jones's breakout novel. For more information, please visit mppublishingusa.com. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, right everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is Partially Professional. This is Mildly Amusing. My guest today is Elizabeth Collins. She is the editor of a new anthology, now available from TNB Books, the official publishing imprint of TheNervousBreakdown.com. That is my online culture magazine and literary community. Uh, very proud of this book for obvious reasons and very happy to have Elizabeth on the program. Uh, the Beautiful Anthology is a terrific uh, collection of essays, stories, and poems, all of which are centered on the subject of beauty somehow uh, in smart and uh, often unexpected ways. And uh, I should also add that the book has a very arresting jacket, uh, if I do say so myself. It was designed by Charlotte Howard who designs all of our books uh, and does so uh, most ably. So contributors to the beautiful anthology include a variety of uh, very gifted writers, including uh, several who have been guests on this very program, uh, folks like Jessica Anya Blau, Melissa Phoebos, Gina Frangello, Greg Oliar, uh, and Victoria Patterson, among many others. Uh, it's a terrific collection of talent, and it's a book about something that most of us spend a lot of time thinking about. Uh, or wishing for, or noticing, or uh, obsessing over, or mourning, or whatever. Uh, and yet, uh, how often do we contemplate it with this level of depth and understanding? So anyway, uh, the beautiful anthology, available right now, wherever books are sold, online. Uh, you got to get it online. Uh, and please do go get your copy. Support the cause, support independent presses, support weird and idiosyncratic writing about beauty, because when you do that, uh, you know, you support the Nervous Breakdown, you support this program, and of course, it would be greatly appreciated. So, Elizabeth Collins, uh, she oversaw the project and served as the book's editor, and uh, she also has a memoir forthcoming later this year 
uh, I believe, from HBH Press. It is called Too Cool for School, and uh, it is all about a very unsettling experience that she had in the professional realm. And uh, she and I are going to talk about that, uh, actually. Uh, so rather than spoil it or delay uh, your gratification any longer, I will now step aside and uh, let things take their natural course. This, again, is Elizabeth Collins, editor of The Beautiful Anthology. I guess what I've learned is that there are a million different ways to think about beauty. And normally when I thought of beauty, I just thought of my own you know, personal history or my personal exposure to magazines or films or anything. You know, just a very literal, um, generic idea of beauty. And my mind has really been opened seeing all the different ways actually the male writers think about beauty. Uh, yeah, well, what about the male writers surprised you? You know what I'm saying? Like, it seems like, uh, you know, at first blush, it would seem like like women have a better and deeper understanding of the concept than men would. Like, was that confirmed by your experience of, of dealing with all these different writers writing about this particular theme? Or did you find yourself, uh, you know, surprised and reversing, like, old ways of thinking as a result? You know, I was I was surprised by, by both uh, the male and female writers, because you could tell that male writers were really trying not to be, um, you know, slaves to the stereotype of, of, you know, the beautiful woman, that you know, the old-fashioned 36, 24, 36 kind of thing. They were obviously trying to think beyond that. And women, too, I think women really focus on the absence of beauty or beauty in these small moments that we don't really, you know, we, that we take for granted. Okay, so I mean, because that's it. Like, by the way, what does thirty six, twenty four, thirty six even mean? I don't even. know. Okay, <laughs> I, I guess when I was growing up, I used to see that on all the Aaron Spelling um, shows. Thirty six, like around the bust line, twenty four inch waist, thirty six inch hips, was considered, you know, the ideal size for a woman. And is that it's, is that yeah. big? Is that now? What is that like compared to the uh, you know the emaciated supermodel? You know what I'm saying? Like, is that like the Marilyn Monroe dimensions or is that like... No, no. Actually, yeah, we would find that to be frighteningly thin. Like, we, we would be hard-pressed to meet those measurements. So 24-inch waist is unheard of these days, it seems. So um, I guess if you really suck it in, <laughs> if you're really wearing something tight, maybe someone in thin could pull it off. But it's actually really tough. Okay. And so what about when you were uh, growing up? Like, what was your relationship with... Uh, beauty, like, were you, I don't know, were you, like, uh, fixated on that? I guess everybody's fixated on that when they're an adolescent. I mean, even even guys are. Like, I remember when I was a kid, uh, uh, like, this is sort of embarrassing to even admit, but I remember, like, eating certs all the time. Like, when I was an adolescent, I was, like, terrified of having uh, bad breath. Is that, I think they, that's normal for teenagers, right? And I just remember like, yeah. I would always have like gum. I was, I just found that like really like unusually gross or something like that. Maybe that's sort of related. Oh, you know, I definitely, I think you, when you notice other people having a false, like halitosis, you know, really, <laughs> really foul breath <laughs> that makes you, makes you especially paranoid that someone will say that about you. Cause you know how you feel when you're around someone and their breath is just atrocious and you just can't, you can't even deal, you want to get away from them, can't even look at them anymore. So you don't want, you're so, you become paranoid that someone will think that way about you. Um, yeah, so it's this hyper-awareness. Of, and I'm, yeah. I'm still sort of like that. I mean, I, I know it's obvious, I obviously like haven't, I haven't slacked off that much on that one, but it's not quite as emotional for me or something, you know, you grow up. Yeah. Oh yeah, well, you're terrified growing up that people are going to start talking about you, and then you know it's, it, when you're when you're all grown up, you hope they talk about you. You don't even care, but when you're younger, you're terrified that they're going to say something bad, make fun of you. Um, I know my daughter is um, just about to be 13, and she's the same way. Constantly has to have all the um, you know gum, <laughs> all the mints, and everything has to be fully stocked at all times. <laughs> <laughs> That's so weird. Okay, but so okay, and then when it comes to beauty, because like I think sometimes I can maybe have like a simple idea of this, or I can feel too confident in my own perceptions. But it's like, uh, uh, you know, like I feel like I have a very, I don't know, uh, like I, I think I feel like there is some sort of, how do I put this without offending like millions of people? Not that millions of people would even hear it, but. Uh, you know, I feel like I can look at someone and be like, okay, that person's beautiful and it's objective. Um, like some people to me are just like, how can you even argue that, 
you know, let me, let me try to think of somebody who you can just like point to and say, there's no way that anybody could possibly consider this person anything but beautiful physically. Um, God, I, I, it's, I don't know. Uh, Kate Moss in her prime. Beautiful. Okay. Too skinny. Mm-hmm. I mean, like she's so beautiful. Like you look at a picture of her when she was like, uh, in you know, in her prime and her, in, in like the beauty of her youth. And it's like, Jesus Christ, you know, like the, there's no, there's no doubting it. But then I guess it's all, you know, it's the old beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And some people would look at that and say, no, like who could possibly say no to that is what I'm saying. And likewise for like a guy like, uh, you know, like George Clooney or something like I can see how he's, a, you know, a beautiful guy. Like how would, I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think sometimes some types of beauty are so obvious that it would be hard to disagree with. Um, but you know, people are nitpicky, and they're always going to notice something. And it, it's it's a cultural thing. I mean, you know, someone might be from a certain culture and say, "Oh, that that thinness is disgusting." You know, the emaciated skeletal frame is gross. But you know, I think beauty, you know, especially in the way one looks on their face, at least, is is really you know pretty universal. We we all know a beautiful face when we see women. So it's like biology, we recognize that. Well, yeah, yeah the body body is something different. <laughs> well, and I feel like you know, I feel too like I'm I'm pretty hard on myself when it comes to this stuff. But I feel like there's some reality. Like I feel like I have a pretty good sense of where I am on the spectrum, you know? Like uh, I'm certainly not like a beautiful person. I don't think that like, you know, if uh if we're talking about like, you know, 10 being like ultimate beauty, like you know, I don't even know where I would place myself, like somewhere in the middle of the scale. Like I don't think I'm atrocious looking, but like I feel like I have a, a relatively decent concept of of self. Like uh how how do you like how did you uh, or how do you approach this and how did you, when you were growing up, like, do you feel like you have a decent self-concept or do you feel like you, uh, ever overestimated your own beauty or do you feel like you always underestimated it? Do you know what I'm saying? I think, I think most people tend to underestimate because you know, they don't want to be seen as conceited. They don't want to be wrong. Um, when I was in college, I had a boyfriend whose, whose brother had this whole system for rating people and it, and it corresponded to like the, um, the British football teams. You know, so she, he'd say like, "Oh, she's a Manchester United," and that would be like top or something. <laughs> and it was it was crazy this whole system. So finally, he rated me, and I said, "What does that even mean?" And my boyfriend said, "Oh, he, he thinks you're an eight. I'm like, "Oh, I'll, I'll take that. You know, oh, I'm take, fine I, with that. I'll take an eight any day. I'll take an eight. But I think you know, I think eight is the maximum anyone would ever rate anyone else unless they were." you know, like a Kate Moss, like okay. a universally acknowledged beauty, because it seems like you're overreaching, you know, if you, and the, I don't think I'm an eight, but this drives me crazy. This drives me crazy though. It's a, it brings up an interesting subject. Like when you're talking to, like, I, I have, uh, you know, I know women who are like really beautiful. Uh, like I grew up with them or whatever. And I've had this actually, I've actually had this conversation. I'm like, you have to know that, you know, you're gorgeous and that people are treating you differently because of this. And like, they always deny it. And I always found that, I mean, it's frustrating because I, I understand the emotional reflex to not want to, uh, you know, confirm that uh, and to not be seen as conceited. But I, I feel like somebody who's like truly beautiful, like you'd have to be really uh, lacking in self-awareness to not understand that and to not understand its effect on people. Correct. Oh, I agree. I totally agree. And yet everybody will deny it. Almost everyone will deny it. And if they don't, you laugh at them and you think they're crazy. Uh, I had a beautiful, yeah, a beautiful roommate in college. And I think I said something to that same effect. Like, you must know that you're beautiful. And she's like, well, I know I'm not butt ugly. <laughs> That's all she would admit to. Yeah. I, like, I would love to see, like, it would be, it would just be interesting if somebody could find a way to be really blunt and direct about understanding their own beauty, but like, you know, to, to say it in a nuanced way that like, you know, went beyond the realm of like just bravado or sort of, uh, you know what I'm saying? You know, like someone, yeah. who, I'd love to hear somebody talk about this. Honestly, it seems like something that people are really dishonest about. And conversely, um, I don't think people are as, you know, as dishonest about, uh, being not so beautiful. You know what I'm saying? When somebody's, um, not necessarily beautiful in the, uh, classic sense or in the popularly accepted, uh, sense, I feel like those people, more often than not, uh, are, are willing to, uh, you know, acknowledge it. Or they're, you know, I, I feel like I'm around much, you know, I've been around many more people who are self-deprecating when, um, 
you know, they, they have features or something that like, I'm always talking about my nose, like, and people tell me it's not, you know, it's nothing to worry about, but it, you know, it's like that kind of thing. Like people are willing to bag on themselves more, more quickly than they are to praise themselves, which I guess is human nature. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that goes along with something I think I heard with Carrie Fisher say one time. She it was a long time ago, right before she got super heavy. She was just kind of normal. And she was doing an interview and she said, well, I'm, you know, obviously I'm 15 pounds overweight. I feel like I have to say that before you say it. You know, that self-deprecation comes out because we're, I think, terrified that someone else is going to say, well, she looked pretty good, but looks like she's a little overweight. Right. Um, so, you know, they jump on it before someone else can. And if you own it, it seems not so bad. If you can make fun of it, you're kind of proving it doesn't bother you. Right. See, but I say it and I talk about how it bothers me. That's like <laughs> I'm owning, like, I guess, the neuroses well, or something. Yeah. Do you, do you want um, people then to say, oh, it's really not that bad? Do you want them to no. you know, make you feel better that way? I just I want, know. no, I just want them to, to feel sorry for me, I think. <laughs> just to acknowledge publicly my plight. Um, so, okay. So growing up, um, you were an eight. What were you? You were a Manchester United or no, you were a, uh, I forget what. I, I don't even know the name of the team anymore. It was, it was like 20 something years ago and it was in Ireland. So I, it meant nothing to me and I needed it translated. Um, and I'm not sure if it was an Irish team or a British team. I'm not even, don't even know. But, yeah, so I was told that, and I remember at the time being slightly offended that he rated me an 8. I'm like, what? God, couldn't it, you know, couldn't you just lie and say it was a little better than that? Um, but at the same time, you know, 8 is probably the best we can hope for, you know? I think so. I think so. So um, let's talk about maybe the the most beautiful person you've ever known. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Is there anybody in your life that you can point to? Like, you talked about that roommate uh, that you had, like, have you ever, uh, you know, been friends with or been intimate with or whatever the case may be with somebody who is just like stunningly, uh, unusually beautiful? Um, I can't say I was friends with this person. Yeah. But I remember seeing, um, a girl in my college who was just gorgeous, just angelic looking, just absolutely beautiful. And, um, it's funny because later on I met her mother who didn't look anything like her <laughs> and was a horrible bitch. And I just used to think, how, how did this happen? How did she have that daughter? And, you know, it just made me think life doesn't make any sense. And it's very strange, but she was just really ethereal looking, gorgeous, you know, blonde, like, you know, looked like, um, uh, like a, a Botticelli, you know, come to life. She was just gorgeous. Um, but she almost didn't seem real to me. So I think, it, it's it's jarring when we see someone who is absolutely beautiful. We we don't almost want to know that person. We don't want to think of them as real because it's so strange. Yeah, we feel so inferior. It's a little scary, you know, or something. Yeah. I find myself intimidated by it. Like, whether it's male or female, you're just like, Jesus, how is this possible, you know? Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, like, it's, it's sort of, you know, it might be self-serving to say this, but you do wonder if it, if it, in, if it in, any, in any way... Uh, makes life more difficult? Like, is it harder for a woman, do you think, who's really beautiful like that to be taken seriously in life? Or do you think that the positives outweigh the negatives? Like, like this is what I'm, you know, it's like that old joke about how, uh, you know, like a really, really beautiful woman or a really, really beautiful man. Like, uh, I think like 30 Rock did uh, a funny episode about this where, uh, you know, Tina Fey is dating uh, John Hamm and like, like she goes out with John Hamm and like doors swing open and people do favors and, you know, women are like whistling at him. And, uh, do you think that that's the case? Like if, if you know, if you're like an, an absolute 10 and you go out, uh, you know, into your life, is it easier or is it in some ways, uh, is life made more difficult by that? Um, yeah, I think it is easier. And I think it becomes so much easier. You cease to notice that it's any different for other people. Um, and then maybe something happens, maybe you get pregnant or gain a lot of weight and all of a sudden you, you notice these things that used to happen don't happen anymore. Um, yeah, so I think it is normal and it's strange. It's kind of crazy. Um, you know, you can see someone holding the door open for a beautiful person and letting it slam in the face of the next person. Um, it's just, you know, I don't know why we're so eager to, um, like kowtow to beautiful people and they're oblivious. Yeah, it's a strange power, and like the thing too, though, is that, you know, it's a and it's worth pointing out is that it's a fleeting power. Like it, nothing, nothing lasts. So, right. mm -hmm. you know, like the the kind of beauty that we're talking about uh, right now is ultimately superficial. 
And, uh, you know, there are obviously deep, you know, different forms of beauty and then there are deeper forms of beauty. And so, um, you know, with respect to the anthology, like, is, uh, are there any pieces in it that you feel really point to, um, this kind of, uh, you know, I guess the, the, the loss of beauty or, you know, or the, or the impermanence of it, uh, and also maybe like the deeper aspects of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think as we get older, you know, especially as, as women get older, they reminisce about their own beauty or they see new ways of looking at beauty because, you know, they feel the loss of that, their own beauty. Um, so when I first think of like uh, Victoria Patterson's, she has a short piece called The Beautiful. Mm. And it's really about just, you know, seeing like beauty in these tiny, tiny moments of, of how we relate to other people. I really like that one. Um, let's see. Um, it's so depressing too. It's like, you know, when you think about it, like it's gotta be really, really hard to be, especially like, like for me, it's like, uh, you know, there's not that much to lose, <laughs> but do you know what I'm saying? Like if you're just like this absolutely angelic looking, uh, you know, person, or you're this like just dashingly handsome guy. And then like, you know, it fades like, like, you know, think about these supermodels, you know, they hit like 40 or whatever it is. And like, you know, things, uh, they're not even 40, 40 is like, I guess the top end of it. But I mean, it, to have that go away has got to be very difficult, you know, at least un unless you're like extremely well adjusted and have an excellent, um, uh, handle on it, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you can certainly see that when you watch a, a film uh, with a beautiful actress who's all of a sudden you're like, wow, she looks like hell. I saw Andy McDowell, I think, in something recently, and I thought, oh, my God, what happened? She, was so, she still looks so beautiful in the L'Oreal, you know, advertisements, but you could see every line and every crease. And I, I don't know if they were trying to make her look bad or if that's, you know, how she looks. Cause she must be in her 50s. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the loss of that's so funny because when I was telling you about that angelic, beautiful, ethereal young woman I knew, I've seen her lately on Facebook and nothing to write home about. I mean, it's, it's a shame and it makes you go, oh, damn, you know, I, feel, I almost feel bad now. Because well, what's her name so we can all look her up? <laughs> no, I can't tell you her name. No, but she was she was so incredibly gorgeous and now she's just average. Does it make you feel any better? Be honest. No, actually, I feel bad. I think, oh, my God, if that happened to her, what happened to me? You know? <laughs> so, See, it's, it's still about you at the end of the day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I don't really feel bad for her. I'm just worried about how this might possibly Well, yeah, are people going to say the same thing about me? Like, whoa, what happened? You know? Well, and you know what's weird, too, about aging is that, like, you know, you, you do notice it in the moments that you notice it. But so much of the time, it seems like nothing's changing. And I think internally, I feel so much like the same way that I did when I was 15 or whatever that... Uh, sometimes I forget the fact that I am getting older, you know? Like, oh, yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I look in the mirror every day, I don't really notice anything, you know, from day to day that's different. And then I'll see a picture that my dad took of me eight years ago, and I'm like, oh, my God, I look so young, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, I, you know, it's really strange to think, wow, it really, we really do age in, you know, in a few years we can change incredibly, and we don't even know it. Would you ever have plastic surgery? Um, that is a good question. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of weird about eyes. I don't like it when eyes get big baggy pockets underneath them. Yeah. So I would get, I would get that done, but I would probably he hesitate to do a lot of other things because I've seen some freaky looking people in New York City. I saw a woman once coming towards me on the street and I actually gasped. It was scary. Her face was pulled so tightly and she had these gigantic fish lips and she just looked, it was frightening. You know, so yeah, I, no, I've seen like, that. It's really, yeah. fucked. it can be really fucked up. And I think too, like when I, this is what I always say about plastic surgery is that, uh, as long as I don't know, I don't notice it at all. It's fine. But if right. I, if I notice it even a little bit, uh, I, I, you know, a, I find it aesthetically displeasing, uh, like 99 times out of a hundred, but I also find it sad. Uh, there's something inherently sad about it. Like when you see somebody who's got like, you know, a million facelifts or, um, you know, and, and what's weird is that. Uh, you know, they're just doing what they want to do. They're trying to be happy. Um, it's probably misguided or it could be at least. Um, but then if somebody has a, a facelift that you don't notice and they just look younger, you're like, oh, that person looks great. So it's, it's hard for me to say with too much um, certitude exactly how I feel. Does that make any sense? Like I'm trying to kind um, of stay open-minded about it. I know exactly what you mean because, it, you know, really good plastic surgery should not be noticeable. It should just look like someone is healthy and rested and 
yeah, you shouldn't you shouldn't be able to say, oh, I can see exactly what she had done. Um, but but I think either people are getting you know bad plastic surgery, too much plastic surgery. I'm not sure what it is. I mean. I wrote my piece about a bad accident I had, and I had plastic surgery on my nose, and thank God I did because, you know, the, the surgeon was so good. You, you know, unless you're really staring at me close up, you probably wouldn't notice. Yeah. Well, I think, like, the only plastic surgery I could ever imagine, have, you know, having for, for purely cosmetic reasons would be uh, if I get, like, that really, like, hardcore, like, neck flesh. Do you know what I'm talking about that guys sometimes get where it's, like, this, this, yeah. this jowly, loose flesh? Like, that would freak me out. Uh, and I've always said that. I was like, I, I tell my wife all the time. I was like, if I get that, it's it's going. I'm doing it. <laughs> I care what anyone says. <laughs> yeah, you know that's funny because my my dad, you know, he's retired now, but you know, about ten years or so ago, he, he found some pieces of paper somebody had filled out about him, and it said he had jowls. And he, he thought that was hysterically funny, but he also xeroxed them and took them home. And you know, he's like, look. They think I have jowls, so that it's an ageist comment, <laughs> the jowls. I do not but, want jowls. I, I fear jowls. Yeah, I don't. I, I was like, you have jowls? I, I really wasn't aware. So Does he have jowls? I mean, would you? And not that I No, I've never really thought about that. So yeah. it's I'm funny. Talking like, I'm talking else. like like Mitch McConnell. You know who he is? The senator. Oh, oh, oh. He's he's the word. He's got, yeah, that like turkey neck. That's yeah, what that's I'm talking, yeah. That's yeah, the, the waddle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's really, that's harsh. Yeah. I, I don't want that. Um, okay. So where are you from? Let's talk about you a little bit. Like, well, give me a little bit of your, uh, your personal history. Okay. I'm from Northern New Jersey. It's very important if you're from the small state of New Jersey to differentiate between North and South. What's the um, difference? What's the difference? You got um, closer to New York is basically. The- yeah, exactly. Close to New York. I guess Southern New Jersey is close to Philly. Um, so I guess that's the primary difference. And, you know, I'm, I'm from a, a, a beautiful suburb. It, you know, it was lovely when I was growing up, and now it's completely – I could never in a million years afford to live there. Did you ever see that movie, The Family Stone? It's a bad movie. No. Um, but it was set in my hometown, and it looks even more gorgeous than it is in real life. What's, um, the, what's the name of the town? It, it's Madison. Okay. I don't know. It's, it. it's a really beautiful little town. And, um, you know, just a suburb. And all of a sudden when we got the direct train service to New York City, it used to have to connect a couple times. Once it went direct, just everything, like real estate values, quadrupled, and that was the end. So Yeah, well, at least, uh, at least you got in early. Well, no, yeah, I grew up there, but I can't, I can't go back. Um, so that's where I'm from, but I always, you know, I spent my first 18 years there, but I've spent the next, I guess, 12 or so years in New York, and then I was in Iowa for graduate school. So I've been around since then. I haven't been home since then, but... Um, I don't know. I think a lot about, you know, the, the question like, where are you from? And I don't know if we should always answer, you know, the place that you grew up, you know, if we should answer the place we've lived the longest. No, I'm the same different. way. Well, I moved around as a kid. So like I, you know, I lived in three different places, um, one of them twice and then, uh, you know, left. So it was like I, my childhood was split up and then I went to Colorado and then I came to California and I've lived in Los Angeles longer than I've lived anywhere, but I don't feel a sense of rootedness. And not only that, but my parents, uh, moved away from where I went to high school so that, you know what I'm saying? I don't go back. You never go back. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't feel like I have a sense of rootedness, but I do feel like if, you know, if you were raised in Madison, New Jersey and your parents still live there, uh, like, do they still live there? They do. Yeah. So like when you go back, that's still home. And I mean, are they in the same home that you were raised in? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there you go. I mean, like that to me would be where you're from because you can actually go back there and like see like the bedroom that you grew up in and all that kind of stuff. But for me, it's just sort of like I feel like uh, rootless in a way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So what do you answer if someone says, where are you from? Um, I used to say Milwaukee just because that's where I was born. Uh, and so that just kind of, I don't know, that was just how I just made it easy for myself. But um, now I just usually give some sort of... Uh, you know, rambling answer about how I moved around a lot and how I don't know. <laughs> sort of like I just did. Right. No, no, no problem. Yeah. I'm, my kids were both born in Iowa and it's so funny because my little one will say, where was I born? And I'll say Iowa. She's like, but I don't remember that place at all. And I'm like, well, then you can say you're from Pennsylvania. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Okay. So what kind of kid were you when you were young? Like, were you, uh, you know, were you always leaning towards uh, books, like even from a young age or was it, was this something that you came to later? Oh, no, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, I was one of those very irritating children who would stand up in the first grade and say, I already read at a fourth grade level, <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> um, you know, I know, literally, I would say that. And um, I was an only child. My mother um, is a teacher. She was a reading specialist. So I was really her guinea pig, you know, when it came to every new pedagogy for teaching reading. And I hated all of it, you know, and I just wanted to read the books. And I used to be in these summer book clubs where they were super competitive in my town because there were a lot of kids who were children of professors. And, um, you know, however many books you read, and every time you went up 10 more books, you get to move your little colored picture, you know, down the stack of books in the library. And it was hardcore. And, you know, sometimes I'd get to like 100 books. And I tell my kids that now, and they think I'm lying, <laughs> but I'm not. I mean, that's how it was when I was growing up. And, you know, now if I assign, you know, if I assign six books in a semester, people will freak out at me. Yeah. Well, what what about and what about being uh, an only child? You said you were an only child. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what about that? Because we have a daughter and I'm like wondering, like, you know, what if she's an only child? Is that OK? Like, do, do you wish that you would have had a sibling? Um, you know, I don't know. Um, at this point, yeah, I wish I had siblings. It would be more life would be more interesting. Then again, you know, I would talk to people who have, you know, four or five siblings, and they, they seem like they had these wonderful holiday dinners. And I said, ah, I'm so jealous. It sounds so wonderful. And they're like, no, it's always she's fighting with him. He's fighting with her. It's always some kind of drama. It's, you know, you don't want that. And so I don't know. I guess the grass is always greener. Um, growing up, though, I was probably pretty happy to be an only child because um, at a certain point I became terrified that my parents would have another child and I'd be, like, forced into servitude. <laughs> you know, <laughs> babysitting and stuff. Got really scared, like 11, 12, 13, that that would happen. Um, yeah, but when you're a little kid, you really like being an only child. So don't feel guilty about it. Um, I've taught a lot of only children who were just so thrilled to be onlys. Um, you know, it's Is that it's what they're called? They're called onlys? Is that how you guys I refer guess, to I guess they're called onlys, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, only children don't really classify themselves, I don't think, but other people will say, like, disparaging things, like, oh, you're an only, so you wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're spo- you, have, you must be spoiled. You're yeah. only. Oh, my but God. It's... Don't feel guilty either way. Yeah, I'm, try- I'm trying not to stress too much about it, but I sort of like the idea of, you know, I like the idea of a, a sibling for her, just so that she has somebody yeah. to talk to. Yeah, about. just in case, yeah. And, you know, it's funny, because I'm also adopted, but, um, you know, when I was all grown up, I found my birth parents. And when I found my birth father, he only had one son. And his wife, who you would think would hate me, you know, <laughs> at the very mention that I exist, that she would hate me, she was always so sweet to me. And I think and she would actually say to me, um, you know, it's because I don't want my son not to have a sibling. And now he has you, you know, whether or not you guys even talk to each other, or at least he has you. If something happens to us, you know, you know, there's someone else in the world related to him. Well, wait a minute now. Okay, so you, you, you met your birth parents, and it was your birth father and your birth mother? Is that correct? No, no, no. So the, ironically, okay, I met my birth mother, and she's, don't put this in the interview, <laughs> she's a little strange. Um, and then I found, she wouldn't tell me who my birth father was. Long story short, I eventually found him, and he's like the nicest guy in the world. And so none of it made any sense. And when I met him, he was immediately wonderful, and he immediately wanted me to meet his wife, his son, his mother, his father, his sister. You know, he was always great. And so I now I have, I guess, technically a half-brother, and I still don't know him very well, but just the fact that we know the other exists, you know, is, is a source of comfort for at least my, my birth father and his wife. Are you guys like uh, Facebook friends or anything like that? No, I mean, I've tried to be Facebook friends with him, but I don't know. You, <laughs> you poked him and he wouldn't respond? No I, didn't, no, I didn't poke him. I mean, what are we? I think I think we're LinkedIn friends, oh, but yeah. I, I, I never see anything just, from him on LinkedIn. If you can't help him get a job, he wants nothing to do with you. That's yeah, well, he, he's the one who, he's very successful, and I think he's just always traveling and busy. Oh, yes. And he doesn't have time for any of the Facebook stuff. What does he do? Is he like some sort of big shot? I don't really understand it personally. It's something to do with accounting and he works for companies that will give him these weird, I don't know what they are, things that change his password like every 15 seconds. I mean, I'm like, what, are you a spy? You need to have your your password changed every 15 seconds. So, but, you know. Maybe he's I don't CIA. Know. Is he CIA? I don't think so. Yeah. If he is, he hasn't told me, so. Yeah, okay. Well, that's interesting. So, um, you, okay. So you were born in, uh, 
Jersey. You were raised. Mm-hmm. You're adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, you were an only, and you were yep. a voracious reader. What were you like in high school? Um, I was, you know, it's funny. Uh, I was an underachiever, strangely. I think I, you get to a certain point where, you know, you, you were the smartest kid for so long, and then all of a sudden, you know, because you were big fish in a little pond, and all of a sudden you're in a different pond, and you realize, wow, I really have to work at this because other people you know, are just as achievement oriented as I am. And I was also going through like this depressing, like (laughs) weird introspective phase where I just wanted to like paint pictures and write poetry and not do my homework. Um, So that's pretty much what I was like in the beginning of high school. And then I was much more normal at the end. So what was this? uh, Was this just the dawn of adolescence and some sort of hormonal surge that had you painting? I think so. Yeah. You know, it wasn't nothing happened. Nothing weird happened to me. Were you painting horses? By any chance? No, no. You know, it's funny. When I was, I keep saying it's funny. Uh, when I was a little kid, I was into horses, and then I was down in uh, the Panhandle of Florida, and I was riding horses, and I got a psycho horse who decided to uh, just take off with me on its back, and then ran ran down, you know, through the through the woods to this gigantic like mud hole filled with snakes and it just remained this traumatic event and then it started bucking and I was going to fall into the like the pool of snakes and it was just Jesus it was Christ. one of the most one of the most horrifying you know events of my life so I didn't ride for a good six years after that um so no wow no yeah, I, I had the same thing happen except that somebody the, the guide that was supposedly you know uh taking care of us whipped my horse like he actually smacked my horse on the ass and that's what set it off running. And I had no idea, you know, I, I still have no idea how to ride a horse, but I was on this thing and it was at a full gallop. And I That's just, scary, right? Yeah, it is. When you don't know what you're doing, I just remember standing up in the stirrups and just like hanging on, you know, <laughs> like it's for dear life. Uh, it was intense, but it was also, I guess, in retrospect, sort of funny, but there was no uh, pool of snakes, which adds a certain element. <laughs> yeah, it adds that, you know, makes it that much more traumatic. So, yeah, no, I, I love horses, and, you know, I don't consider a vacation a vacation unless I get to ride at some point, but it's, I'm not obsessed with them. Oh, wow, I didn't realize that. So you're, you're a ra- like, when you go on vacation, you must ride a horse. Yeah, ideally, I must ride a horse, yeah. Huh. <laughs> I was always telling my husband that. I'm like, okay, well, when are we going to ride a horse? Because that's really important to me on every vacation. Okay, that's interesting. Well, and you just like you, it's, I mean, I was just kidding around because I feel like young girls are, are always sort of drawing drawing horses. When... I, I don't know why it is. I guess it's because I don't do it very often. So I, I figure if I'm going on this expensive, lavish vacation, there will be a horse ride, whether it's you know in the rainforest or along a beach. I don't care. I've got to ride a horse. Okay. So I mean, the last two times I did it, though, I got ticks from these horses. So. Oh, ticks or kicks? Tick ticks. You know, like the. the Insects that suck your blood and burrow yeah. into your flesh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I have experience with that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so, and you said your mother was a teacher, uh, mm-hmm. and then was your father also an academic? Um, yeah, part-time. I mean, he was also a businessman, but he was a, a finance professor, strangely. Like, he knows he knows all this, like, freaky stuff about money that I don't even comprehend. And I wish he had taught me some of it. He had taught me nothing um, when it came to that. But he, you know, he knows how to day trade and he does all that so does he really is he good at it yeah he is good at it oh, what a skill like just to know how to like play the money game and to, and to win you know it seems like in this world not a bad thing to know yeah it's and it's funny because he grew i keep saying that uh, he grew up in brooklyn like sleeping on a couch in, in a like a one-bedroom apartment and he just taught him he's totally self-taught when it comes to all matters of of money. And, um, I remember he had a, an especially good trade and he told me later, he's like, yep, in, you know, in half an hour, I earned all the money for your college education. <laughs> so, you know, he, he knows what he's doing. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I don't, I don't know anything. I need to talk to him. Can he, <laughs> does he, does he have people as like clients? Will he invest for you? You know, I don't have anything to invest, but it's funny. I keep saying that. Sorry. He wanted to do um, private, you know, uh, consulting for people, wealth management sort of thing. Yeah. And then he re- he so he advertised and he was doing it a little. And then he told me, everyone I meet is crazy. I'm not doing this anymore. They're all insane. 
Yeah, well, you know yeah. who you know who's good at and this is totally random, uh, but you know who's really good investor apparently is the uh, the actor Josh Brolin. I remember reading something about him, but oh, really? Yeah, he like hmm. taught he taught himself the same thing, and I think he like runs his own fund or something, and uh, you know, and like makes all sorts of money, and you know, has like an incredible uh, return. You know, like his, it's, he's got some sort of great track record or something. But it's uh, it's interesting when people get good at that. I wish I, I think I guess like. You know the truth of it probably is that it's not. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. I don't want to. I don't want to oversimplify it. But I bet if it, it's just a matter of like really actually doing the work and doing the reading and staying on top of things, and if you actually invest the time and the energy into doing that, you know. But who does that? There's just a few people who actually do the work. Yeah, you have you have to sincerely find it, you know, stimulating. And I, I don't, you <laughs> know, but yeah. Um, yeah, and I and I feel like every time I've made investments, I've hit just incredibly bad luck times. I remember I had some money and I invested it, and it was doing really well. This was, in, was, was when we had President Clinton, right? I was like, "Wow, it's doing great!" And then, <laughs> and then I lost like two thirds of it. So. Yeah, I don't know what the, like I like I. This is what I finally decided when it comes to that sort of stuff: is that the only thing I'll invest in is something with any confidence. I should say, is something that I actually use and understand and like. Um, that's it. Like, and cause, cause I'm obviously not going to read a prospectus and I'm not going to crunch the numbers and understand it in like a, you know, uh, intelligent quantifiable way. So if I'm going to make a qualitative assessment of something, um, it's gotta be like a product that I actually use. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think you need to, you know, deal with things individually. My, my fault or my problem was I was doing mutual funds and I think I just really got you know, I, I know I hit a bad time in the market, but now I'm really gun shy when it comes to mutual funds or anything. Yeah, but so. the mutual funds are supposed to be a safer bet because you're distributing. It's all it's all very confusing. Yeah, I think so too. Um, so, did you get along with your folks? I mean, it sounds like you had a pretty happy family life. I mean, even though your dad was like this finance wizard, and you're, you know, kind of like a, a writerly, uh, bookish, uh, you know, artistic sort. Like, was there any tension in the household when you were in high school? Were you a rebel or of any kind? No, I mean, I stayed pretty quiet when it came to my parents. Uh, I, I think we pretty much got along. Um, I think part of the reason maybe my father didn't teach me all this stuff about finance was, A, I wasn't really interested, you know, at the time. But also, you know, maybe it was a generational slightly sexist thing, thinking, you know, oh, women don't do that. Women don't, you know, have to worry about stuff like that. Um, so, you know, because he always took care of all of that. Um, so maybe that was part of it. And, yeah, I always got along absolutely fine, probably better with my dad than with my mom when I was growing up. Yeah. And then what about, uh, and then you went to college where? Where did you go to undergrad? Um, I went to Sarah Lawrence, okay. which is a very artsy school. And um, now I really feel like I should have gone to Dartmouth because all my friends, literally all my friends that I made immediately after college went to Dartmouth. So that was really strange. Yeah, I don't understand all that. Like, I'm, I never lived on the East Coast in my life. So like, it's like Sarah Lawrence and Vassar and all these small schools. Like, it, it seems sort of like mysterious to me. Like, what was it actually like to be there? Well, you know, I chose Sarah Lawrence in the end because I just wanted a sure thing and I knew they were going to take me because I couldn't deal with the stress. My mother was so, you know, such a worrier about college. I, I just I was like, I can't live until, you know, the end of April with, with my mother, you know, crying every night. So worried about where I'm going to go to college. She was, so, really, she was literally crying every night? Yeah, yeah. She Well, she would actually more like don't don't put this in either she more literally yelling at me like she would wake up at 2 a.m and stand at the foot of the stairs my room was upstairs and say i just had a nightmare that you you only got into lynchburg and lynchburg is a school for total fuck-ups you know it's in um virginia <laughs> so i was like that's really nice thank you for waking me up i appreciate your confidence in my abilities, you know, that I'm going to go to Lynchburg, I'm going to go to Lynchburg, <laughs> right? And like, you know, like she, she was kind of crazy in that uh, regard. Ap apologies <laughs> to all the Lynchburg graduates listening. Yeah, I, yeah, no offense to anyone who went to Lynchburg. <laughs> that was just what my mother would say to me. So your parents, um, were your parents like, it sounds like she was like ambitious for you. She had high ambitions for you or something. Or... Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, she really, uh, you know, at the time I resented it, but now I understand it. She very much instilled this idea that, you know, if you have the potential to be something, you should be that. There are no excuses. Um, so I, I definitely agree with that. I have a, a private tutoring company. It's called Full Potential. <laughs> you know, and when I, when I talk about full potential, I mean, what are you capable of? 
we're going to make sure that, you know, you reach that pinnacle. You're going to achieve those things. Jesus. You know, people, Are yeah, you... no, people pay me a lot of money to get their kids an 800 on the SAT. That's what I do now, strangely. And I tell my mother this, and she can't understand it. I said, anyone, if you work hard enough, you can get an 800. She's like, really? I'm like, yeah. You, just, <laughs> you might have to take the test 18 times, but I think eventually you will probably get that 800. Goodness gracious! So, are are you a tiger mom? Like, are you super hardcore with your kids when it comes to like? You know, no, I'm, I'm. I wish I were. I mean, I feel like I should be, but they won't listen to me, so it doesn't matter. And how old are um, they? Um, I have a daughter who's going to be 13 in the fall, and a daughter who will be 10 at the end of the summer. Okay. No, they don't listen to me. So Al- <laughs> I mean, already, I, I mean, at 13, I can sort of see a kid tuning you out, but the 10 year old tunes you out too. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Okay. Um, when it comes to these academic things. Yeah, because she's she's really really smart, and you've ever seen that book? It's called like the birthday book or the book I don't know something birthdays. It's fascinating. It's like this giant tome, and they've analyzed every person, every mostly famous people who are all born on a certain date and figured out certain traits. And my daughter's birth date says these people are very very smart, but they can turn to criminal activity just because. They can get away with it. They're really smart. I'm, so I'm always paranoid that she's going to turn to criminal activity. <laughs> so I've got to like get her on the road. To, is it is know. it that big birthday book by like Juiced Elfers or something? Do you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That, that's actually yeah. a pretty good one. Like I remember like, I, reading my entry and being like, "This this sort of gets me in a weird way." You know? Like, yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's a great book. I, I, I that's how when I read my my birthday, it's March 18th, and it's like these people, you know suffer frequent setbacks and they often return, you know, to the point of return and their life, their life is a cycle. And I'm like, that's absolutely true. But maybe they're just like, maybe it's just like brilliant at like, you know, using generalizations that could apply to anyone, but seem specific somehow. I don't know. I go back and forth <laughs> about that stuff. You know, like, I don't know. Yeah. There seems but, like there yeah. might be something to it, you know, numerology and astrology, but I, it's, you know, it's hard for me to like completely buy in, you know? Yeah. I don't really buy numerology at all, but, and, and, you know, really, people who are really good at astrology always blow my mind, but it's like that generic astrology you see in magazines or newspapers is, is nothing. So Yeah, yeah. So, uh, okay, so let's get into your uh, your young adulthood. Like, you get out of Sarah Lawrence. Uh, did, I mean, did you have fun there? Did you have, what kind of, you know, were you a very studious uh, person in college, or were you basically just kind of like uh, getting by and having fun and then going off into the world? No, I was I was very studious in college. Um, strangely, because I had I hadn't been too studious in high school until until the end when I got serious. Um, but Sarah Lawrence, um, what I really liked about it was the fact that there, you know, you had really close relationships with your professors, and I don't mean in any sort of you know pervy way, but you know that you could ask them questions and you do independent studies and things like that. And so I was really into it and. You know, it's just like with high school, every year is different. Like the first year is, first year could be fun, the second year could be boring, the third year is great, the fourth year you're just stressing about going out into the world. Um, I was really worried about what I was going to do after because I didn't really give it any thought until the very end. You didn't give it any thought to what you wanted to do until the end? Not, no, not really, which is ridiculous because now people know when they're 16, you know, what they're going to do, what they're going to study. And I, didn't really think about it. I don't know what my problem was, but I guess no one that I knew was thinking about it. Nobody was going pre-professional in any kind of way. I just, I guess I just assumed that I would do something. Uh, I mean, I think this is what I assumed. I think I assumed I would sell a book, you know, and and buy a house and I would do that when I was 21 or something. (laughs) I think that's what I assumed. What was your major again? Uh, we didn't really have majors at Sarah Lawrence. Oh, you um, okay. We had concentrations. So I guess my concentration was philosophy. So. Okay. And then and then you got out and you were like, oh, now what? Yeah, yeah. Like uh, I think it was Christmas time of my senior year. My mother was saying things to me like, well, what are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't really thought about it. And then I remember flipping through some catalog and going, oh, I could go into publishing. Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. So I told my mom I was going to go into publishing. So she said, okay, and she bought me some, you know, fancy pantsuit that I absolutely hated putting on. But I went to this these job interviews, and I got a job immediately and worked in publishing. Where did you work there in publishing? Well, I first worked for um, – I was interviewing at all the big houses, and then I got offered a job, like, immediately. I, went, I walked into a, a, this literary agency, 
and um, you know this like this placement agency sent me there. I walked into the literary agency. I literally walked in the door. They're like, "Do you want to work here? Because we like you." So I was like, "Okay." So, <laughs> so that's what happened. Just like twenty-one, and, just like smacking your gum. Like, all right, I'll take it. Yeah, no, I was wearing these crazy shoes, and they were like these Chinese laundry plat- platform shoes. They were I don't know what I was thinking. I was wearing them. They were black, like velvet, and I was wearing them with like white stockings and like my black suit. And it just, it was a really bizarre look. But you could tell that whoever was interviewing me, she looked at my shoes, she looked at me, and she goes, you're hired. <laughs> so I don't know what that's about. Wow. But, that's, a different yeah. t- that's a different time, you know? I think, yeah. I don't think young people graduating are having that kind of experience very often. No, I don't either. And, and like I, it's actually been years since I've had an interview. That's how bad the market is. I used to get interviews immediately when I would, you know, in the old days, fax my resume. They'd call me 10 minutes later, call me in for an interview. I'd get the job. And now I can't even get an interview. So I don't know if that's, you know, the culture now with everything is screened by computer and no one's actually reading the resumes. I'm not sure. But yeah, it's depressing. It's, a, it's, some, it's like some sort of logarithm or something. Yeah, it's horrible. So let's talk about, uh, I guess, like, okay, so publishing, and then you went to Iowa. You Like, you decided to try to apply for graduate school? Yeah, so I was I was working in publishing, and then I realized, why am I helping everyone else with their books when I want to write myself? So then I was trying to get out of publishing, and I got into journalism, and then, you know, once I had, you know, some of my, my decent clips, I applied to graduate school, you know, and I started writing more, and then... It's fun. I applied to graduate schools and all for writing, and then got soundly rejected the first time. I tried again the next year, and I got in everywhere. So I don't know. So maybe what, what maybe changed? I some time. What changed? I don't know. Maybe I took it more seriously. Maybe I realized, okay, this is it. If, this, if it doesn't work this time, you're not going. And so. so and so you got into Iowa, which is pretty great. Yeah, but you know, it just goes to show it's a complete crapshoot because. The second time when I said I got in everywhere, I don't mean literally everywhere. I get in most places. And I still didn't get into, like, the worst programs, like the safeties I was applying to. So it just goes to show it's completely subjective. There's no rhyme or reason, and it's all just, you know, the luck of the draw sometimes. Wow. Okay. So how was your experience at Iowa? Um, uh, I want to I be, be kind, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not sure what to say. Um, there were times where I would sit there in, in like, the workshop and leave and, and literally want to kill myself. Um, and then there were times, you know, that were good. So it, it was strange. It was very cutthroat, I felt. Really? Like, very competitive? Yeah, did very, you, very did, did you have, I mean, I mean, obviously you probably had some friends that you made along the way, but did you find that you liked most of the people or disliked most of the people? Um, about, probably about half and half. I mean... I, you know, I won a big prize, I think, halfway through, and it was really kind of random that I even sent in my work, submitted my work for this prize, and when I won it, I had completely forgotten that I had applied for it, you know, or submitted, and people were talking about me and saying something, I can't believe she won for that, I can't believe she won for that, you know, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> so it was really, you know, there's a lot of competition, and, it, I- you know, we all feel it though as writers, I think. I, you know, I can't stand it. I, I've always said this and people like I've had conversations with people where they're like, you know, eh, everybody's competitive. You know, if you say you can't stand it, then you're just in denial or you know what I'm saying? But like, I really can't stand it. I don't like it. And I don't relish at all competing against other human beings like at all. And I really, um, I, I also feel gross when it comes to ambition. Um, and, and I think like, I mean, I think it's good to have ambitions and to have uh, things that you want to do. I mean, you, you, you're here and you're alive. You might as well try to do something, you know. So I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. But I, I guess, like, there's just an ugly side to it that um, really affects me. Like, do you, do you, And maybe when you're in a, in a place like Iowa where there's, like, people who are really achievement-oriented and are supposedly the cream of the crop and they're all trying to do the same thing, like, you know, it's kind of a crucible and you're, you're sort of in there experiencing all that and it you know i imagine it can be pretty intense 
Yeah, yeah, I can. I, I really, you know, at the time I was in Iowa, I was also like, I had my first child. And so I really kind of fell out of it, you know, because of that, you know, I was taking care of a baby and I'm trying to write and I'm trying to get through this program. So I really physically removed myself um, because it just, you know, it wasn't something I could, they even, you know, nobody wants to hang out with me and my baby, you know, <laughs> when I was in grad school. <laughs> uh, it's not a, really a good time. Um, so, you know, well, I'll get my dog out of here before he barks. Um, so that's what was going on. But I, you know, I think there's this, this sense that people have that if somebody wins a prize or something, then there's less for the other people. You know, there's less for me. If, if he gets that or she gets that, then there's less for me. And that's completely untrue. And I really believe that we have to help each other. But yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll fully admit there were it was like six months ago, some writer I know, Want, got something or won something, and I did have this moment of like, oh, you know, like this deep, horrible feeling of you know, like, you know, existential pain, and I was depressed, and and then I, like I shook it off like ten minutes later. I'm like, I'm going to send him a note saying how great that is. That's what I'm going to do, and yeah. then I will feel better. So that's what I did. Like no, it's like the old Gore Vidal quote. It's like every time a friend of mine succeeds, a little part of me dies. You know. Like, <laughs> I guess like, that's natural, but it's natural. But it's like it's also like yeah, I think that's another way of saying that like people are just awful. Like all of us, we're just awful. Like we're a, a, a disease species, you know. Like somebody like you, who you're friends with like has some success, and like all you can do is feel like you know angry about it. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, no, it, it's it's really depressing, and I I don't want to be that person. You know, I don't want to be you know that angry, miserable person who begrudges other people's success. No, I mean, but. You know, you, you can't help but feel like a loser. And I, I'll tell you, you were talking about Tina Fey. I live across the street from Tina Fey's parents, so I see Tina Fey quite a bit. I haven't seen her that much recently. Wait, you, you live across from them right now? Yep. I'm looking at their house right now. Oh, yep. wow. In Pennsylvania? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. So I see her. I used to see her, like, every two months, like clockwork, she would come home. But now... Every once in a while, I'll see this really, really nice um, limo. Limo. It's like an Escalade, you know, like sure. a hybrid Escalade with the driver. And every time that pulls up, I know Tina's home, and I feel like such a loser, <laughs> you know, because I'm like, oh, here I am. And she's and there's in the Tina. Escalade, yeah. and her, she's got <laughs> the tinted windows. Nobody can yes, see her. Yeah, tinted windows. Yeah. And one time, I think it was about a year ago, I was walking, I have these two crazy dogs. I'm walking these dogs, and I probably look all sweaty and disgusting. And I'm walking up the sidewalk, and the Escalade pulls up, and they're all looking at me. <laughs> the windows are down, and it was Tina and some famous people whose names I don't know, but I've seen them on television, I'm like, and they're all looking at me. And I just knew that they were going to say something about me <laughs> as soon as I walked in my house. But, you know, people will ask me all the time, or, do you talk to her? Well, if hey is is talking, then I guess we talk. But um, yeah, I just feel like such a jerk sometimes when I see her, even though she's perfectly nice. Yeah, it's just because yeah, it's weird. You know, just the Escalade is enough to trigger it. You know. Oh, I just feel like such a jerk. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about. Uh, you've got a memoir coming, correct? Mm-hmm. So t t tell us a little bit about that. Um, well, it's called Too Cool for School, and. Um, Basically, I was a high school English teacher for about six years, and I never intended to be a teacher, but after I got out of grad school, um, you know, there was a weird job recession, but strangely, people kept calling me out of the blue and offering me teaching jobs, and, you know, I never intended to be a teacher, but I thought, oh, I'll try, so I taught college, and I liked it a lot, and then I got offered this job teaching at this private high school, and I didn't apply for it. It was just, you know, I was called. And so I thought, this is this is strange. This is, like, divinely engineered or something. I should do this. So I did it. I loved it. I mean, it was really hard work, really exhausting. The pay was terrible. Um, but I really felt like I had a purpose. I felt like, okay, this is what I can offer the world. This is This is a good thing. And I did it, and everything was going great. And I actually... I remember saying, you know, I feel completely bulletproof here. I've got my MFA and everybody thinks I'm awesome. And, you know, I'm, you know, I don't ever have to worry about anything. And then, um, you know, somebody, somebody went after me because I had an Obama sticker on my car and I didn't change my name when I got married and all this weird stuff. And I just thought, what? I was so baffled by this. And then I had this, I had a blog because another writer I knew told me I needed to have a platform 
so I started writing about, you know, teaching and other teachers around the world would write me letters and say, oh, you're so helpful. Thank you so much. And I thought I was so great. So I would do this blog and I was talking about teaching speech writing because I used to write speeches. And I said, tone is really important. I was dismayed the other day in class when I, you know, I taught a week-long lesson on tone and then it was obviously ignored. Well, whoever thought she was the subject of, you know, my dismay, you know, just freaked out, called mommy and daddy. They came in screaming, telling me they wanted to watch me die in the street. They wanted to watch my kids die in the street. It was just so unbelievably awful. And they said they wanted to watch your kids die in the street. Yes. Yes. They 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 said said that. Yeah. Oh, they said worse. Yeah. They said, you know, we're going to seize your house. We're going to financially destroy you. You will be starving and penniless. And when you die, we'll be sitting there laughing and taking pictures. And like, I was just so <laughs> over the top that you can't make, you can't make this stuff up. Right. Um, you know, it was so awful. And, um, so this all is going on. I was just under so much stress. I had like a, I had a heart attack. <laughs> you know, it was so bad. You had a heart and, attack? I literally had a heart attack. I'm, you know, I was like 38 years old, and I'm like, I feel awful. <laughs> Why do I feel so awful? And I drove to my doctor, and she didn't. EK- I didn't say it was my heart. I didn't know what it was. She did an EKG. She's like, you got a heart attack. You got to go to the hospital. So it was so bad, and it's it so awful. And then so people are like, she's making that up. She didn't have a heart attack. <laughs> you know, all this stuff. And anyway, so this all went on, and my principal and. The person who runs the school were like, don't worry about it. You're, you're awesome. You didn't do anything wrong. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, they canned me <laughs> because these people had basically threatened them, too. So they had that in a long, you know, a long story in a long story form. That's, that's what the book is about. They canned you for what? Um, they canned me, yeah, for what? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. They sent me some convoluted letter that I still have. It doesn't make any sense. It's like it's a really great example of... I guess, bad writing. And it says, um, you know, the fact that you, you blogged that you were dismayed, that's not the reason I was canned, um, you know, goes to show that you, you don't respect, you know, our parents or something like that. I don't know. It didn't make any sense. So can't you sue so, them? Can't you sue for wrongful termination? And, and, uh, you know, you could, you know, for the physical stress that this caused on you when you had a heart attack at 38? I mean, Jesus. Yeah, you would, you would think so. But it, what it turns out is that um, in states with at-will employment laws, and trust me, I must have sat down with like 12 different lawyers after this happened. And, you know, all of them said, yeah, yeah, in a perfect world, yeah, you could sue the school, you could sue these people. But, you, you know, at-will means they can, you know, terminate you for anything. They don't even have to say what it is. So... You know, you don't really have a leg to stand on in that regard. Um, so it's just not, I don't want to be that person, though. I don't want to be the person who threatens other people with lawsuits, you know, because I was threatened with a lawsuit for writing that I was dismayed. That's all you, you know, said. That's all you said. That's, that's all I said. So it's so crazy. It's so crazy. But so, I mean, that's the heart of the, the memoir is, is this experience. But it's really about teaching and my ideas about teaching. And it's about, you know, what I think about being a lifelong learner. And stuff like that. So, well, when does it come out? I'm hoping that it will be out by September. Okay. So I wanted it to be out just in, in time for like, the school year. Kids can put it in their backpacks and. <laughs> yeah, no, I really wanted it to be out during the summer so that teachers could read it over the summer. So, if I get lucky, it will be out in August, but um, probably early September, more realistically. Okay. Well. Um, so- you know, it's been fun talking with you. Thank you so much. And I should say thank you so much for all the hard work that you did on the uh, the beautiful anthology. The book turned out great. And good. I don't know. Do you have any closing thoughts? You feel good about this? You feel like we uh, we covered everything? Yeah, well, I hope, you know, I feel I feel bad now that I didn't talk, you know, about the contributors. But I don't know most of them personally, but I was really blown away by some of their work. So I, that's what I really love about the book is that I think it's an interesting read and it, there, everything is so different. And, you know, every time you turn the page, it's, you know, a totally different feeling. And I, I really like that about the anthology. And when we think of anthologies, we think of those boring things they made us read in English class. This is not, <laughs> this is not the same thing. All right. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Okay, folks, there you have it. That is Elizabeth Collins. She is the editor of The Beautiful Anthology, now available from TNB Books, the official independent press of The Nervous Breakdown. You can get your copy wherever books are sold online. 
please do that. It helps the cause. The book is available in trade paperback and will soon be available in ebook format. Uh, and be sure to uh, to keep your eye out for Elizabeth's memoir, Too Cool for School. Uh, that'll be available later this year from HBH Press. You can find Elizabeth on the web at prettyfreaky.blogspot.com. She's on Twitter at Sheep and Stars, and you can find her on Facebook as well. The Beautiful Anthology has its own Facebook page, uh, and The Nervous Breakdown has a Facebook page, etc. This program has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence, and if you want to email me, uh, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks once again to today's sponsor, MP Publishing, who later this year will be bringing you American Decameron, the new novel by award-winning author Mark Dunn. American Decameron tells 100 stories, each taking place in a different year of the 20th century. Zany and affecting, deeply moving, and wildly hilarious, American Decameron is one of America's most powerful writers at the top of his game. The book will be available as of October 16th, 2012 from MP Publishing. For more information, please visit www.mppublishingusa.com. Okay, Uh, I think that's it. I think we're all set. I think we've covered the basics. I think we have achieved some form of uh, psychic cohesion. Please remember that Karl Marx not once in his life saw the inside of a factory and that Nietzsche's friends referred to him with affection as Fritz. Thank you for listening. Much appreciated as always. Back again soon. Uh, Go enjoy your summer. Stay hydrated. Take chances. Uh, Don't take foolish chances, but do take chances because uh, this is it. It's happening. It's real. Uh, At least I think it's real. Is it real? It might not be real.